Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Heart of Sports with Jason Springer and Jeff Cohen, powered by ELEC825. We are thrilled to join you on WWDB 860 AM, 97.5 HD2, part of the Beasley Media Group, ready to help you move into the weekend, talking about all the news in the world of sports. Jeff, I'm trying to come out of the, the pain of what happened last weekend to me as an Eagles fan, and I learned this morning that you wanted to inflict some pain on yourself so that you could either empathize or sympathize with what us Eagles fans are going through. Is that is that what's going on today, the phone well, call I got no, this morning? No, I would love to empathize with you. I feel for the Eagles fans of, of the city. Um, I was not looking to do anything. But for those, I guess we now have to do a public service announcement, announcement because I found out this is a common injury, is the dreaded cutting the bagel injury. So for those that are listening and and like bagels get precise bagels because it's apparently it's the most common thing that you can end up in the er for if you're eating food so you're know. you're playing hurt but you're a gamer yep, got stitches but i'm i'm still here you're you're committed to the you're like a hockey player really you get yep. right back on the ice and you're out mm-hmm. there for the next shift don't even miss anything i'm gonna lose my teeth next right <laughs> well you you may lose that at some point anyway but not because of a hockey game <laughs> man, i'll tell you who, who lost it yesterday is carter hart Ooh. oh man they are tough to watch you know, he's had a really good season I, mean, we, I know we don't talk hockey a lot because the flyers aren't worth talking about a, a lot of the time um this season but uh, carter hart's had a really good season but yesterday was not one of his better performances these these two get the last two games um it's the first two times that they really haven't looked competitive to me like they've played hard and been competitive all season even when they've lost the last two just haven't been like that. And, and, you know, I didn't think we'd open the show with hockey. We can talk in a minute. The trade line deadline comes up on March 3rd. You moving some people? You got James Van Riemsdyk people might want, Kevin Hayes, Ivan Provorov. You, you saying see you later because we just need more young guys? Well, if you think that you have the the general manager and coach here who can develop young guys, then yes, that's what you should be doing. It's not like the Flyers are going to make a push for the Stanley Cup this season. So I'd like to make sure that Carter Hart's youth is not wasted. The the Flyers have not had a great goalie in such a long time. Carter Hart has that possibility, and so does the backup, quite frankly. It's amazing. They have to get young people here, but you got to be able to do this in two to three years. You You can't have a complete rebuild that's going to take five, 10 years for literally decades. They had talented teams, but could not solve the goalie problem. They finally find a goalie and they put nothing in front of him. It, well, I mean, it's just a shooting gallery. It's just a shooting gallery against him though. I mean, some of the shots and saves that he has is, is just unbelievable. Um, anyway, we'll, we'll leave the hockey there. Um, not much to talk about. All right. You let's want to get back to the Super Bowl that badly. huh? Oh, God. Okay. Do you know what makes, your team losing the Super Bowl more painful, Jeff? What? Having a six-year-old that you have to watch the replay with the next morning because he fell asleep and didn't stay awake and then explain losing afterwards. Can't you just say to him, look, they lost, it's not worth it? He didn't want to, which I kind of appreciated and respected. He wanted to subject himself to the pain of being an Eagles fan. And, and And we watched it together, and he had questions. I had questions too. I didn't really, he goes, why would they do that? I go, you know what? It makes no sense. That's a good question. And lots of people will ask that. Um, but why you know, did they do what? 
on some of the different things in the second half with the coverages. Oh. He didn't understand why nobody was on one half of the field when the guy was touching a touch, catching a touchdown. Mm. It's hard to explain to a six-year-old when you don't understand it as a 40, soon to be 44-year-old. Well, apparently it wasn't Gannon's fault because he got himself a job. Well, okay. I, I think those are two separate issues. So let's <laughs> let's talk about... Well, you the, didn't detect my sarcasm there, huh? I got the sarcasm. Um, I didn't really appreciate his optimism yesterday uh, at his new press conference, not recognizing the pain that people are still feeling here because he said he's had a great 48 hours and none of us have. Uh, so there's that. Look, the they couldn't stop the Chiefs in the second half. I mean, it's just that simple. No defensive adjustments. They killed on the same route on both sides of the field on different plays with different players. All season long, you would joke with me when I would say to you, like, I'm concerned about this or I'm concerned about that. And and you and Keith were right when you did it on the one show. You're like, your team's 14 and three. Like, what can you say? You're right, except for... Well, no, except I did say that the big concern was the linebackers. The linebackers, they got dinked and dunked. The the soft zone problems in the middle of the field where they're going to be a problem, and that's exactly what they were, a problem. And the run defense, which had been problems earlier in the year, and the inability to make adjustments, which is why when when Jonathan Gannon was leaving, you said to me, so are you happy? And it's like, yes, I would like a defensive coordinator that makes adjustments. And I didn't feel like they made adjustments in the second half. Now, at the same time, the other thing that I worried about early in the season, more from a return team side, which actually they had a good punt return. It was the coverage team. My God, Jeff, your damn giant Kadarius Tony ripped my heart out. (laughs) Brings it down to the five. The... Their special teams coverage was lacking in that game, and they had had problems previously that they had corrected during the year. That coach will be back. But you can't do that against a great football team. And we talked about that with Jason Reed in the the lead-up, that this was the best team that the Eagles would face all year. And the Chiefs took advantage of every mistake that the Eagles made. Andy Reed did a great job. In the second half, he schemed whatever he was planning at halftime. He adjusted, and that's why they won. It, you know, you talked, we talked for the weeks leading up to this about the experience of the Chiefs versus the Eagles, and the experience showed up in the second half of the game. I mean, can is there any doubt that the experience that they had versus the inexperienced Eagles had showed up? No, and look, the experience is what leads to the in-game adjustments. You've been there before. You're prepared. You see that your game plan is not working. Your quarterback is hobbled. And you make adjustments. And what they did, which bothers me more, the Eagles had problems with that exact route that they could not stop twice that scored touchdowns in the Super Bowl. Weeks before when they played the Jaguars. Doug Peterson is the person who found that weakness in the defense. They struggled with it then. There was no correction of it. And they looked completely lost. Again, when a six-year-old says to me, Daddy, why is nobody in that part of the field as the guy is catching the ball? 
you know that something did not work out correctly on the defensive side. And it would, you know, if you look back on some of the, if you watch some of the NFL films where there's the audio, which I always enjoy that. So yes, I've subjected myself to some of that, some for good, some for bad. Um, They were actually, the Chiefs were lined up incorrectly on that last touchdown. Mahomes had to motion the wrong way to get the route to even happen because they were completely set up in the wrong formation. So, look, you got to give the Chiefs credit. Yeah, and and, and what and, and that comes with experience. Yes, exactly. That comes with a quarterback who has been through this before. You can't. And by the way, you can't blame Jalen Hurts one bit for this. He had an had had they won that game, he's the MVP of the Super Bowl. No doubt, he balled out. I mean, he was great. He had the one mistake that that led to the the huge. Swing. We talked about in the game on last week's show about the prop bets, about the the 0.5 for turnover margin. And I said to you, would there be a, a turnover that impacted the game? And you said, would it impact the game? I don't know, but there will be a turnover. It impacted the game. That changed mm-hmm. everything at that moment. I was surprised that the Eagles didn't bring a little more pressure up the middle in the second half, knowing Mahomes' ankle was uncomfortable. Um, I am not going to use it as an excuse, but I will point out that both teams now have complained about the playing surface. Um, okay. Well, yeah, but, but here, here's it my did problem. not impact. It no. did not. It, that's not the reason the Eagles lost, by the way. I know, but, and I'm, and this is not on you, but, but I have heard this all week from people about the condition of the playing surface. Okay. That just bringing it up to me, is an issue because it impacted both teams equally. And the Eagles did switch their cleats after the first quarter. In some cases, they showed that. It, I get when people complain about artificial surfaces because of injuries. I don't get that anybody would complain about the condition of the turf when it is real grass, isn't an injury necessarily concern. And both teams, again, had the same condition. There have been Super Bowls where it's rained. It's muddy. It's slippery. It, this is, to me, no different. It, the Super Bowl doesn't have to be ideal. Look, I wish the Super Bowl would be played in, in northern cities outdoors sometimes, but people don't want that. They want as ideal conditions as possible so it's equally fair. Eat. I don't think this hurt or helped any team one more than the other. Oh, I think it hurt both teams. And I don't, I don't say it as the Eagles lost because of the field. But in a game where it rains, you expect the field conditions to be like this. There was no rain. It was pristine conditions. And again, if you watch the NFL films tape where they have the players, it was both players talking about it. Now, again, nobody should use that as the reason they lost, but the NFL deserved to give better. They spent $800,000 on a field. We're spending way too... The fact that we've just spent more than 60 seconds on this, if you want to talk about the pass interference call, let's talk about that. I don't want to give any more oxygen to grass. I I was surprised they called the pass interference call. I thought it was... I didn't think it wasn't pass interference. I thought I was surprised they called it at that time because the NFL selectively calls things and generally they don't want an official to decide in that moment. So I was surprised they called it. I thought it was stand up of Bradbury to own it after Mm -hmm. the game. I thought it was less than classy from Juju to send a Valentine 
saying I'll hold you on Valentine's Day as a meme. And look, I mean, it was disappointing because you had the opportunity for an exciting finish where Kansas City could have kicked a field goal or scored a touchdown and the Eagles could have had a chance with the ball to drive down the field. It was a fantastic game. And there were other things on either side. There were penalties that were there that weren't called. There was the Miles Sanders fumble that wasn't a fumble because they said he hadn't started the the progress that could have gone a different way. There was the Devontae Smith catch. There were lots of different things. But in the end, the fumble from Jalen Hurts in the first half happened because Isaac Sayamalu false started on a third and one when they were going to do the push play. The, the fumble occurred because the blocking didn't occur correctly. The touchdowns at the end occurred because they didn't have the defensive assignments right. Those are the reasons that the Eagles lost. Everything else is just, it makes us look bad. It makes us look like Niners fans. Yeah, well, there, there's a couple things that happened in this game that I've watched over the course of the season that I find nauseating. The one that is most is that push play you were talking about. Which they may get rid of. They may get rid of it. They, they need to. It, it's a ridiculous play. You can't sit there and just have a quarterback snap the ball and have a bunch of big, big guys behind him and just shove him forward. That's not football. Well, you it's can right. if that's the rule, but I think they're going to change the rule. Well, but they're the going to change the rugby. rule. The quote was, it amounts to a rugby scrum from Dean yeah. Blandino. The NFL wants to showcase the athleticism and skill. This is just not a skillful play. No. It, so. It, it's as I said, it's rugby. And look, I like rugby, but this isn't rugby. And it's just, it, it's a ridiculous play. They should get rid of it. I don't know why, why all of a sudden this was something that they thought would be a good way to have football. So the game is over. Uh, we have lost both coordinators, Jonathan Gannon and Shane Steichen. Um, and it looks like the Chiefs are about to lose their offensive coordinator. Yep. Uh, Eric Bieniemy likely to go to the Washington Commanders. Look, they, they're going to have a lot of turnover. Uh, they have 28 players that have expired contracts, including Miles Sanders, James Bradbury, Kaiser White, TJ Edwards, big names that that played big roles on this team. Of the last 30 Super Bowls, teams that lost are 2-28 and 28 in making it back the next year. So it shows you, you know, you play a harder schedule. You lose coaches and coordinators because they get jobs. It looks like what the Eagles are going to do is promote from within for the offensive coordinator, at least with Brian Johnson, who right. has an interesting background with Jalen Hurts. Jalen Hurts' right. father it's actually coached him. It, yeah, it's it, it, you know the one thing that you can if you look around the league with young quarterbacks, the key to a young quarterback's success seems to be stability. I mean, if you look around the league, I'll give you a couple examples. Mac Jones. Mac Jones came into the league. Everybody thought he was going. He was the most polished of the guys that was coming out of out of college, right? He comes in. He has a good first year, not a great first year. And then Bill Belichick, the genius coach, decides he's going to have two guys who have never been offensive coordinators be the offense co-offensive coordinators. It was a disaster. Now look at at um, the guy in Jacksonville. He sits there and and he had a bad first year because he had a bad coach there. And they has a better coach, and now look what happens. And you can go around the league, and you, Justin Herbert, again, he is a great talent, but he is being held back despite his statistics because they keep changing things in San, in L.A. Sorry. I was ah, they're always going to be San Diego to you. But you can go just throughout the league and can see that the stability. Of, so 
the Eagles are doing the smart thing by keeping Brian Johnson there and elevating him. I don't think it's going, I don't think them losing Steichen hurts that much. And I don't think them losing Gannon hurts them at all. I, I Look, there are people who say that we underestimated Gannon. You know my opinion on him. I don't need Buddy Ryan to blitz all the time. I need a coordinator with a philosophy that is willing to adjust their game plan if it's not working. And that's you, you. You had the team that was historically a defensive line that was historically great in the number of sacks that they had. I understand. And had zero sacks in the Super Bowl. Yes. Against the quarterback whose mobility was at least limited because of injury. And the things that they were doing in the first half that weren't working, although they got home right before the half to to tackle him and and make him hobbled, they didn't make any adjustments in the second half. They kept trying those same wide rushes where they would slip. They didn't try a different type of, they didn't have people stand up. They didn't bring any, and look, you, you have to be careful blitzing Mahomes because we had talked about how effective he was against the blitz in the red zone. They got burned on a blitz in the red zone. So, you know, we'll see. It looks like it's a little less clear on the defensive side. You've got the pa- defensive passing game coordinator, DB coach, Denard Wilson, who may be the in-house front runner, um, they talked about Vance Joseph, who's been out with the Arizona Cardinals. Might he come here? He seems to be somebody that's with a little more aggressive style defense. Uh, it looks like Sirianni has said he wants somebody that's willing to adjust. I don't know if that's uh, a. Di- I, have, I have a question about this Cardinals job, by the way. I, I don't. I know nobody cares about the Arizona Cardinals. Why, when when you need to fix Kyler Murray? Do you bring in a defensive, a young defensive coordinator as your head coach? I have no idea. They're going to have to have an offensive coordinator that works with him, but his whole philosophy is not around the offense. And look, they're not going to have Kyler Murray next year. He's not going to be here coming back from that injury. So, you know, Gannon can say he wants to build around him, but he won't Mm -hmm. be there next year to build around. He's going to have to build a team around a different identity, at least for a year until Kyler Murray's back. So we'll see what happens with that. You know, frustrating time. You felt good at the half if you're an Eagles fan. They couldn't hold on. Extremely exciting season. Disappointing the way it ended. I will say I thought that Jalen Hurts and the Eagles handled it with all class. Um, Some of the comments of Jalen Hurts were were very good in terms of now, perspective. Do you pay him in the offseason? Yeah, no, you have to. I think you have to. I think well, you have to for a couple. Who you're able to bring back? I think you have to for a couple reasons. Well, not as much this year because he can still be on the rookie year for one more year, so they can spread it out. But in future years, yes, it will. But I think you have to because you have to set the market. Otherwise, you'll get like a Deshaun Watson type deal, and then you're chasing that, and you're even more hamstrung. So I think I think he's earned the money. He played through pain. He was there. He played well in the biggest moments on the biggest stage. I think you pay the man. I think you have to. Uh, so we'll see what happens with that, Jeff. Uh, well, do you, you want you want to talk a little more playing through pain? We should talk about the Sixers. God, because apparently our big man is playing through pain. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of hoping he doesn't play in the all-star game. 
Um, well, look, every year we have this discussion about you. You don't want any of your team's players playing in any all-star game whatsoever. Nope. Even when they're healthy, I don't want it. I, I don't. So now, now you're, now you're going to get your wish. Cause I can't, Embiid is not going to play in the all-star game. I'm good. Good. Lay down, put your feet up. Just yeah, don't have but, Chick-fil-A. But, but here's the concern again. You, you have the Sixers playing probably the best that they have played. And they hit the break. The, losing to the Raptors. Okay. And, and you're, your star player once again has a foot or in a lower body injury. And if it's what he says it is, which is a foot injury, those are the injuries that bigger players, heavier players, taller players have consistently. It's what, isn't that what ruined or ended Yao Ming's career? Yeah. It lingers so, because you got so to carry that is, load. And, and, Embiid saying, and I don't know if he's doing this because he's trying to have his moment where he looks like, you know, he's doing Michael Jordan, uh, but he's saying that the doctor said he should have been off his feet weeks ago and he's playing. And while that may be admirable, you always hate when he does that. It, it may not be wise, especially for a foot injury, because if it turns out that he fractures that foot because he compromised it and didn't stay off it like he said that he was supposed to, the season's over. Well, you, you, you don't you don't think that the signing of Dwayne Dedman as a free agent buyout is enough security in case Joel Embiid for isn't what? there? What Come on, that's not going to get what? it done. I, I will say on the backup center front, Paul Reed seems to be on the good list and Montrez Harrell seems to be on the bad list for Doc these days in terms of who gets minutes in the rotation. Yeah, but you know that change. I mean, that could change on a dime, and that and that's not your biggest concern. I still think the Sixers are going to try to do something on the buyout market soon. I would assume you have to do it in the next couple of weeks. So, hopefully, there's a couple of people who come through that that you kind of would want. They you know, I'm I'm surprised that the Sixers haven't gone after a guy like Patrick Beverly. Yeah, look, he would be. He's, a, the kind, he's the kind of guy. Yes, he is a guy. Now, I don't know what Doc's history is with Patrick Beverly. I guess that's the one thing because I, I don't, I don't know if he played with him, but he might have at one point. Uh, he, he can be loud. I mean, look, he's, a, he's a lot like the guy we sent to to Miami. So, it, you could have that, or he could be a spark plug. He could be somebody who's getting in people's ears, which is kind of what you need with this team. Well, I know that you're paying close attention to who the Sixers have in their roster spots, and we're very excited when they signed Mac McClung to a two-way contract. Oh, so now on. you can watch an NBA player in the slam dunk contest. Uh, look, I, I, I will <laughs> readily admit I didn't know who Mac McClung was until it was announced that wait he was till you, be in the Wait till you see the pictures of him. he hasn't played in the NBA. Yes. And how did we get from, and I'm about to date myself here. I remember the days when a slam dunk contest had Michael Jordan, Clyde Drexler, Dominique Wilkins, and you can go on and on and on before the days of having to jump over props to do it. Having Mac, having a guy who has spent his career and this season in the G league, who's promoted to the NBA just so he could play in a dunk contest. I don't think that's why he was promoted, by the way. I, I think okay. he would have played even if he was in the G League. And by the way, you're not many, the old yeah. guy because Kevin Durant agrees with you. 
Kevin Durant had the same comments, like, what are we doing here, was basically his response. McClung took the high road and said, you know, I'm not going to take the criticism, whatever. But you're not alone in your thinking about that. Wait, I'm not blaming Mac McClung for this. If they, if somebody invites him to do this, of course he's going to do it. Why wouldn't he? And he's a, a good dunker. For an NBA player. But but what I don't understand is if, the, if we've gotten to the point that the stars don't want to do it, then don't do it. And by the way, is the slam dunk contest used to be the most exciting part of the All-Star game the weekend. But the problem is there's no more dunks to do. The, the body has not advanced that much since the days of the 70s and 80s that there is that much more to do when it comes to a dunk. There's only so far you can jump before you fall and can't dunk the ball. There's only so many times you can spin around because of gravity. So we're at a point where they can do those dunks, but the, it's not the ooh-ahs that you're going to get that you got when you saw old players do it. The slam dunk and, jumped and so, the shark for me when they started jumping over cars. So jump the Kia is what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, when they when they jumped the Kia, that, that was right. that was enough uh, for me. And look, I'm entertained by it. Uh, you know, if I'm around, I, so it will surprise you. The All Star game is not. You're entertained by it now. Because less, the, less now. Like it's it not. Is, a, is that they're? Tr- but the other part of it is they're trying to do things that take them multiple times before the ball even goes through the basket. It's not like, appointment TV for me anymore, but if I'm around and flipping through, I'll probably watch for a couple of minutes. I think I enjoy the three-point contest more than I enjoy the dunk contest normally. It's, um, ju- it's just a lot of filler time. The, the, the dunk contest is now, you know, what is it, two hours long, and they could do it in 10 minutes. Yeah, they have a lot of waiting around and this and that. And then, and then this year they have like a all-star draft before the all-star game. So there's like an hour long draft where they'll pick teams. Like we're out in the basketball courts on the playground, you know? So uh, well, you're going to have some, looks like one of the captains may not even be playing. Why is Joel a captain? No, I think Giannis, I think Giannis. Oh yeah. He hurt his wrist last night playing. Yeah. So we'll see what, whether, how long he's out for that. Look, I think you're going to see a bunch of players kind of duck out of it. But back to the Sixers real fast. I did want to man- say load management in the all-star game now. Adam Silver talked about load management. He was asked about it and and balancing it in the league. He, he said, I understand the disappointment of the fans. I, personally, I think that's a scheduling issue. If you don't have so many back-to-backs, you wouldn't have as many load, man- load management yes, nights off. Yes, you would. You'd have a yes, bunch, but you you'd have fewer. Maybe not as many, but you will. There is a group. There is a handful of players. It's not all of them, but there is a handful of star players that you don't want to question whether or not they're dogging it or not. But it does seem like there are a handful of players that you get. Fr- at least I get frustrated knowing that you're likely not going to see them if you go see them on the road i do find it interesting back to the sixers in terms of what they've done with their rotation um mcdaniel's got minutes at the end of the game in against cleveland over tucker and maxi for defense so not sure how doc is going to use mcdaniel's but he's already getting more minutes that matter than Thibel did now of course you see Thibel goes out to portland and <laughs> puts up like a bunch of three-pointers and knocks him down in his first game so that won't quite be the logan ohapi trade for you where it like sticks in your crawl forever yeah, we, could, we could talk about that in a minute but i would like to talk about just for a second ben simmons okay and we I, could do that I, I know he's not our problem but really ben can you just say you want to retire and get it over with you mean you didn't think Jock Jock Vaughn had a basketball game is 
painful now. You didn't think ja- Jacques Vaughn having to explain how they don't know how to use him was... He, he's making close to $40 million. What is it? 35 and change a season. He is the only remaining star on that team. He was a two-time All-Star who's a, still young, who they can't figure out who to put him with on the court because he will not shoot the ball. He has more fouls in some games than he has baskets. He's 6'10". He's more athletic than 90% of the league. There's no way that he should have two points in four fouls in a game. I enjoy now that you I enjoy now that you've gone from not wanting to talk about him at all ever to sending me his stat lines in text messages at different nights because you're in you're amazed at the regression from the regression. He had regressed at with the Sixers to a level. What he's with the Nets is a shell of that regressed level of himself. Jeff, why don't we leave the basketball there? Let's take the break. And when we come back, let's talk talk with Evan Drellick about some cheating around baseball and a new book. And then after that, we'll talk some baseball. Stick with us. Operating engineers are the men and women that move mountains. And the Engineers Labor Employer Cooperative, ELEC, puts them to work. They create opportunities for the men, women, and union signatory contractors of Local 825, repaving our roads, keeping our homes bright and warm and even building our favorite team stadium. We understand infrastructure. That's why ELEC and Local 825 are ready to get to work. Andrelic, senior writer for The Athletic, former Astros beat writer, who better to give us an inside look on his new book out about the Astros called Winning Fixes Everything, How Baseball's Brightest Minds Created the Sport's Biggest Mess. Evan, welcome to the show and congratulations on the book. Thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it. What up? So, so, Evan, before we get to the book, you've been covering baseball for a while now. Do you still get excited about spring training? You know, I'm down in spring training right now. Um, do I still get excited? I guess the pause gives it away. Uh, not maybe in the same way I used to. It's nice being in the warm weather. It's nice kind of being in the pleasant setting of the grass. Uh, I don't know that it hits. Like, when I was in college, I literally skip classes to watch Mets uh, spring training games. Really stupid thing to do. <laughs> I, I'm not going to do, you know, you know what I mean? It's it, it does become a profession at some point. But I, look, they gave me a, a nice muscle car down here. I enjoy it. it. It's not quite what it was when I was younger, but I do enjoy it. Wow. Well, you know, but this but this year, even, even if you don't enjoy it necessarily, there there's lots of changes this year. Are you interested to see what the changes are going to be with all the rules? No, absolutely. Uh, you know, the reason uh, I'm in uh, Dunedin, Clearwater at the moment is because uh, they had a whole rules demonstration here yesterday, uh, you know, on the field at the Blue Jays complex, not far from, uh, you know, the Phillies complex. And um, there's a lot. There's a lot for these umpires to keep track of. There's a lot that frankly could go wrong. You know, I think you're going to hear some complaints, particularly in spring training, maybe early in the season, too. Uh, and it, it it is an interesting juncture for the sport that they're I, I think the goal of speeding up the game is a worthy one. I think it's good. They're making efforts to change, but how they actually end up working at the major league level. Yeah, you know, we're strap yourself in. We're going to find out. Has there been any since we're about to get to your book? Has there been any talk about 
ways that teams are going to find to cheat with these new rules. No, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's interesting. They're being pretty uh, forward about this notion of trying to prevent what they're calling circumvention. But yeah, we can call it cheating. Um, they they have been conscious of it with this, and and maybe uh, it'd be an interesting question to ask. I don't know if I'd get a truthful answer, but. Um, you know, maybe, maybe after the sign stealing and they bring in these video rooms with instant replay and they don't realize what's going to come of that, you know, maybe they're a little more keen to, okay, well, we know how our front offices and, and clubhouses act. They're always trying to find an edge. So let's try to be out in front. So they do seem to be being uh, proactive on this one. Well, when I'm getting to the book, you, you jump right into it. You don't, you don't waste any time. In the introduction, you say, this is a book about what happens when business leaders decide the bottom line results the only thing that matters. About what happens when a baseball team believes no matter how big a mess it creates, a championship parade will wipe away all the sins. You were there with the Red Sox. Talk about 2018, how you learned about the cheating during the ALCS. Yeah, I had been an Astros beat writer from 13 to 16, but I left to go to Boston. Um, so I was working for a regional sports network in Boston and it was coincidentally during the, the Astros Red Sox ALCS in 18 and I was in Houston and uh, I spoke with people inside the organization you know, firsthand uh, as opposed to you know a lot of what had kind of already cropped up which is like hey I think that guy's cheating you know this this was actually firm information on the inside and um, you know I was floored I mean, it, it, I knew it was a big story uh, I knew I would want more corroboration. You know, the series ends. I actually walk. Uh, I do my television spot on the field after the the final game of the series, and, and you know nobody's really down there, and it's kind of dark. So I just walk over to the, the Astros dugout into the tunnel area, and well, there's some ha wires hanging down, and there's a garbage can uh, right next to that same wall, just as it was described to me. Even though it's a year later, you know you could still see these pieces of what seemed to be, um, you know, the tools of the scheme and. You know, I took that photo and it uh, that photo waited on my phone for 13 months. And eventually Ken Rosenthal and I got a story done. But it was it was a long 13 months. You know, you, you mentioned in the book, when when did you realize it was more than just reporting stories and it, it was something bigger for you? Meaning that when did I realized it was a book. Yeah. When did you, you say, OK, there's more here. There's there's a book. I'm very proud of the Astros cheating story you know i think that that will always be remembered and, and probably attached to me and certainly to ken rosenthal um but in a way i'm almost as proud of and you know maybe uh a drink or two in i might tell you uh more proud of the reporting i did years earlier nine years ago now you know i, I was really the first to report on questions of the astros management culture back in 2014 when uh you know they were losing a lot of games at that time, but they were really in vogue. It was, you know, they, they were these analytics darlings. Um, and, you know, a lot of people who who kind of saw it black and white, Astros good because analytics are good, didn't like it. A lot of prominent people. But, you know, there, there, were, there were real issues festering there. And I, so I knew this from my time as an Astros beat writer, now going back a decade. I mean, the book is really a decade of work. It's not just the last couple of years. And, um, you know, we have Brandon Taubman, the assistant general manager, get fired for yelling in the clubhouse. We have the science stealing. I, I knew there was a larger story. You know, I knew my own reporting. I knew some of the scandals that had happened before it. The, the Astros hadn't been strangers to controversy prior to 2018 and 2019. You know, they, they were always kind of a lightning rod. Um, and, you know, they did that to themselves. So I knew it was there. Uh, I knew it would be a, a really big task. But I, I, I felt like this sense of obligation. 
if I'm if I'm not if I'm ever going to write a book about something, if not this, then what? Right? You know, broke the story. I have a vantage nobody else has. Um, it 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 felt felt like something I needed to tell. And they even tried to remove you from the beat in 2015 because they didn't like your coverage. And in the book, you have an amazing quote where a person says, I'll go to the end to crush you people. Trust me. Talk about the process of reporting the threats and how important Mike Fires was in terms of having somebody on the record. Yeah, look, anything you're reporting, it doesn't matter if it's a massive cheating scheme or you know something smaller or or, or bigger. If it's you know something of, of a real world impact, you want people on the record. Uh, you know, anonymous sources are not uh, your first choice. You want people to put their names to things. Um, certainly, when it comes to messy, controversial business practices, it doesn't often happen. And and so to have his name in the story, uh, you know, it adds validation. Um, I, I I do detect a lot of times there's a perception that. The whole thing hinged on him that, you know, that he called us up one day and decided to spill the beans. And, and that's how it all happened when when, you know, I guess it could have happened that way. Who knows? But it, it's just not what happened. We actually spoke to him. Ken Rosenthal made that call uh, three days before publishing. And we were still trying to get people on the record. But the story was coming. We had the facts. We were going to go. It, it You know, it wasn't waiting for somebody on the record. But. I'm really glad we did, and it took a uh, did get somebody on the record, and it took a lot of courage um, for him to do it. Uh, you know, look when you're reporting on things that that people don't want to talk about, it can get a little messy, get a little hairy, um, and that's true in politics. It's true in hard news reporting, uh, outside business reporting. You know, it's uh, a lot of sports writing can just be kind of, and I'm not putting it down. I, I I've done a lot of it myself, like entertainment writing, right? You're writing about a performance. Um, this this was a little closer to, I mean, it was, it was investigative journalism. And, you know, Evan, we, we often talk to, to local beat writers about how important the beat writers are, because you understand, as opposed to a national writer, you get to see the insides of the organization. You're there all the time. In, in this particular case, how important was it for you to understand the culture and what you had seen within the organization to kind of put together the story? Yeah, I, and that's what I was saying. Where I think I had a vantage, you know, a viewpoint uh, and lived experience, having been in Houston, where some other crazy stuff was going on at the time that nobody else really had. You know, there's a book written about the Astros by a feature writer who dropped in and you know got some great access from the front office, but um, you know that book in the end doesn't doesn't look very good, uh, and it, you know. It, it can be easy as a sports writer to look at the title of the book, right? A, a team wins and they'll they'll write really lovely things about you. But what if you encounter a team that is very good on the field but has all sorts of crap going on behind the scenes, right? What if at the end of the day, and it was the case with the 2017 Astros, you know, the, the trophy doesn't end the conversation. It, it it is not the final word on on um you know success or competency or uh you know, how you run your team. And and so I knew there was stuff underneath. There was stuff that, um, you know, I hadn't gotten to report, but had been aware of that I could newly pursue. Yeah, I, I, was, I was very well positioned because look, as a beat writer, you know, if we're talking about beat writers, it is hard to to challenge or to present challenges and criticisms of the team you cover. It can come at a cost. Uh, it came at a cost to me in the sense that, you know, upper management did not like me, literally tried to get me fired. Uh, but if you're doing it when there's real substance there and you're doing it fairly, others will notice that. 
and you will you will earn the respect and trust and and the sourcing of other stakeholders and and it's you know it's a bit of it's almost like a short-term sacrifice for a long-term gain but um you know i'm i'm, I'm proud i had had the uh the gumption to do it it, you know, I wanted to ask about this. This isn't just a story about stealing signs and, and banging on trash cans. This is about the way the league handled this. You have a you said everybody thought this was a well-oiled machine. But when you look at it, it was a disorganized mess. Can you talk about the league's reaction to this and some of the other cheating that went on? Well, from a league perspective, you, you don't want scandal after scandal after scandal. And so it's not surprising to me. It, it, it's not fair, but it's not surprising to me that, you know, the, the 18 Red Sox punishment looks a lot different. It probably looked should have looked somewhat different than the Astros punishment because the Red Sox weren't doing something quite as egregious, but yeah, they were still breaking the rules. Um, MLB uh, wants to promote positive things. The Astros culture was starting to bleed over into things like the postseason, right? In the 2018 playoffs, you have this controversy over this lower level Astros intern employee, Kyle McLaughlin taking pictures near Cleveland and Boston's dugout. The next year, you have Brandon Taubman's blow up in the clubhouse. He gets fired, and that becomes a major controversy. So, you know, two years in a row, it's not just that the Astros' uh, culture was affecting its own employees or players or, or agents of players. It, it was starting to affect the league in a way. Um, and so I, I do think their patience had run out. And look, when when, when you when they went in um, and, and searched for what Ken and I found, you know, they also found real wrongdoing. You know, it... it um, kind of a uh, kind of a perfect storm in a way why do you think the astros aren't the only ones that cheated they aren't the only ones that were stealing signs why do you think from from your investigation the astros situation was taken so much more seriously and has stuck to them more than other teams well for one they win the world series i mean guess the, the 18 red sox do too i i think it it comes down to a question of egregiousness you can take a position that any cheating is cheating. Doesn't matter how severe or or not. Uh, Faye Vincent, the former commissioner who, who's in the book, uh, you know, I had a conversation with him about that. And, and that seems to be his position that, uh, you know, a little cheating could be just as damaging as a lot of cheating. I don't think that's the opinion of most. I don't think that's the opinion of most fans uh, and, and inside the baseball industry. Typically, if you commit a crime, which, you know, in baseball terms, this was, there's some sense of severity, of degree. Uh, you know, whereas the Red Sox, the Yankees, the Dodgers might have been going, I don't know, 90 in a 65, 80 something in a 55, whatever numbers you want to assign to it. You know, the Astros were going 120, right? It, it, they were taking it to a whole other level. Um, Andy McCullough, who's a colleague of mine the other day, uh, we were just talking out at uh, Mets camp and, you know, he, he made a point that he said somebody else had, had made to him, you know, somebody in baseball that. Um, it, it, the Astros broke the Geneva Convention. The, 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 it was it was just a whole step beyond, and and that is perception. But you can you know you can have arguments about whether that perception is right. But that is the way it's looked at, and and I frankly I do look at it that way as well. That this was a cut above um what the other teams were known to have doing. Right? That we you know you know you talk something came out later. Maybe who knows? But. You talk about it being a baseball crime. Uh, one anecdote that didn't make it in the book, the FBI actually called you during their investigation to see what you knew. How did that go down? Yeah, I I, I was trying to remember. Um, I think this would have been 
20 i was in new york um uh i was reporting i believe on at the time on the red side it was either my last year in houston or i had just moved back to boston uh and i remember i was on the road in a hotel room i guess everything weird happens to me in hotel rooms uh, on on the road covering baseball games um and yeah i just got a call from a random number it was an fbi agent who wanted to ask me about um the Astro stuff, because in a weird way, I'm kind of indirectly tied into uh, just the chronology of events, which is that I was the first to report on the Astros internal system, the database. They called it ground control, you know, a little uh, NASA play there and uh, uh, Bowie. Um, and after that story runs is only is the first time the Astros realize, hey, people are trying to get into our system. And the Astros thought it was because their URL had been visible in a photo. They allowed the Chronicle, my paper at the time to take, uh, and their URL shouldn't have been, you know, in the photo. Somebody should have caught that in, internally, the Astros, like they shouldn't have allowed somebody to turn around the monitor and have the, the UR, URL visible. So people were trying to get in, but it turned out that people had already gotten in, uh, in, in, or at least one person. And that would have been Chris Correa of the Cardinals who, you know, literally get sent to federal prison. So I don't think I was much help to the FBI. I just explained to them uh, what, you know, what it basically what I just told you guys here. But um, yeah, that was that that's a weird wrinkle. I didn't include it in the book, but but it is a weird wrinkle. You know, Evan, as, as somebody who's read the book, you there are moments in this book and there's moments in any good book where you just kind of shake your head and go, wow. As, as as the person who got to investigate this and write this book, what was the one moment that you just shook your head and went, wow? Was it Joey yeah. Cora? Or was, I mean, Alex Cora, or was it just something else? You know, it, it, there were so many of them, it, 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 truly for me, as I was going through it, where I had that, you know, whoa, this is wild. Like, like who would believe some of this stuff uh, that's, that's going on? You know, yeah, the brazenness of Alex Cora bragging. Uh, you know, we stole that World Series. Um, you know, the thing that jumped out at me, I, I think, was th th there'd been a book written about the 2017 Astros. Um, it makes no mention of the fact that McKinsey and company was present inside the Astros offices, working with baseball operations during that same season, and that it was this major fracturing of the front office. The difference between the public narrative of the Astros and what was actually going on, all this infighting between uh, top executives about the future of innovation and research and development at the Astros. Um, you know, there's a quote in the book, I think the McKinsey report is what ended up leading to the destruction of the Astros front office. And so you have this amazing team on the field, but there's they're coming apart at the seams behind the scenes, not just with the cheating scheme, but with this really divisive thing in the front office. All of this inside of 2017, which everybody looked at as this, wow, what a magical season. You know, it, it's that difference between reality and narrative um, really did strike me. People need to read it for themselves. The book is out everywhere. Winning fixes everything. How baseball's brightest minds created sports biggest mess. Evan Drellick, thank you so much for the time. Best of luck with the book and enjoy spring training. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. All right. Of course, I'm excited about pitchers and catchers, and I'm glad that we talked to to Evan about that at the start. Are you what was the most surprising thing to you in that interview talking to him about? 
Look, I, I'm still, and I will always have my jaw dropped at the fact that Cora, you give him a little bit to drink and all of a sudden he's bragging about it. I th but I think what the stunning part is, is the the levels to which the Astros seem to have, have a culture about this. And, and to me, that's the shocking part of it. The Astros were always this innocuous team that nobody really ever cared about and just became, is there a team in sports now that is hated more than the Astros. No, and you were right to ask. And there's very few Astros players from that team that are left. You were right to ask. Even the admission of Cora, it has stuck to the Astros more than it has the Red Sox or the Yankees or the Dodgers or other teams that have been accused of things. It's the Astros who, as he said, and the book is really interesting, he covers as much of their cultural problems internally the coup that was attempted within their leadership. I mean, it's it's not a fiction book like the murder mystery we had a few weeks ago, but there are some <laughs> things in there that you're just like, that was a baseball office and that happened? It really is um, pretty interesting. I didn't uh, say one of the, the quotes. Baseball America said, has said about it, uh, it does better than anybody is serve as a fly on the wall of a front office as it finds success and tries to sustain it. They should have added and then fails at it because the way that that organization Wait, fails at what? Because they've 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 kept the success. They just they, they did. Just that they're still successful. They did, but they had the falls in between with the scandals. But they didn't really get punished for it. I mean, the the players got punished. The Astros went back and kept playing. Well, the punishment that that they thought was going to be inflicted was was them going from city to city and being shamed. But as we've learned over the last decade or so, shame only lasts so long in, in today's news cycle. Yeah, they have no shame. Well, are either rehabilitated. I mean, I mean, look, I hate to go back to Kyrie Irving, but we, you've just watched a man get traded to a team and all of a sudden everybody has forgotten that this season he was promoting anti-Semitic tropes along with all the other nonsense that he does. And somehow he's rehabilitated. So it doesn't take much in today's sports culture for, for the, and today's just today's society for people to be rehabilitated and things be forgotten. Well, as we said with him, he's, he's in Florida. Pitchers and catchers have reported um, lots of talk of Andrew Painter throwing pitches yesterday. Uh, let's just talk about how hard it is again to repeat. Uh, how Jeff, you know how many teams have won back-to-back -back National League pennants since 1979? Well, here you go. Okay, give me this that. Four. So, I mean, the odds say that they have a tough season. And one of them is the Phillies, right? Yes. Yeah, one of them. And so, you and know, in the two, 2008 2009 Phillies. Yeah, and so, you know, look, barring injuries, we know a lot of what this team's going to look like. The top seven slots are in the bullpen are, are pretty much locked with Dominguez, Alvarado, who both um, had arbitration deals settled. Um, Strom, Soto, Kimbrell, Brogdon, and Bilotti. Same goes By the way, the, the, the Dominguez deal, the two years plus the Phillies option, was a great deal. Yeah, uh, that's Locking, a very team-friendly... Those numbers for the next three years was a great deal, but... It gives him security, and it's a very team-friendly deal. Same goes for the top four slots in the rotation, Nola, Wheeler, Walker, and Suarez. I mean, you know them. The battle there will be for the fifth spot. Is it Andrew Painter, 
who everybody well, hold on the question is 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 the battle for a fifth slot or is the battle for a fifth and sixth slot? It, that's... Is there a possibility that the Phillies go with the six-man rotation and if it's a six-man rotation does that mean Bailey Falter or McAble would be that sixth man so that's what I find interesting because that's a way to limit Painter's innings if you only have him go every other like in a six man rotation, he gets extra days, fewer starts. Cause that's the concern is he's never been stretched out like this as a younger well, I guy. Hate, I hate to point this out, but it's not just to help painter get through the season. It helps Wheeler it and... helps Wheeler to get through the season. Look, I have concerns about that. He had arm issues in the playoffs towards the end. He had mm-hmm. some during the season. It was a later season and shorter off season for him and Nola with all the, I mean, Nola pitched, over 200 innings last season. So, you know, I, I hope that I would definitely mind, not mind them considering a six-man rotation, especially to start the season, to let them kind of ease into it. Looks like the bench, three of the spots are kind of locked up. Edmundo Sosa, Josh Harrison, and Garrett Stubbs, who we're going to have some fun with on next week's show talking to. I can't wait to have him on to talk. So that leaves a couple spots open on the bench. You think maybe like a Derek Hall... Is, is the guy who gets that, especially with Harper not in the lineup. And and the lineup slots are set. The question is, what's the batting order going to be? You know, is Kyle Schwarber your leadoff in this lineup? No. He's not mine. No, stop. He's not. There's no way. I, I Look, I, I was willing to accept last year that Schwarber was your leadoff hitter because you want him up more than that whole thing. You now have a traditional top-of-the-lineup guy. You don't sign Trey Turner, who is now the fastest guy on your team, probably, and don't have him bat lead off. He's a 300 hitter with some pop and speed in, in a time when we're about to have rule changes that are going to benefit base runners. Who already if Trey broke- Turner is not at the top of the lineup. Everything that I believed about our coach goes right out the window. Who broke a car window the, the other day in his first batting practice at spring training. <laughs> uh, look, if, if it was me, uh, I would have Trey Turner at the, the leadoff, and then I would either have Stott or Bohm at two and have probably Hoskins three, Schwarber four, Real Muto five, Castiano six, and then whichever you don't have, Stott or Bohm seven, and then Marsh eight, and depending who your cleanup hitter is or who your DH is. That's well, probably we better, get, we better get the old Castellanos and not last year's Castellanos. What, what do you think about that? I mean, do you do you think he's going to bounce back? That's obviously you know, know. if you look I don't, at the I don't big know how he fell off that much. If you look at the big questions, it's when does Harper come back? Does Castellanos bounce back? Can the Phillies' arms stay healthy? Those are the big questions, and and we had talked. We'll talk next week with with Pat McCarthy who. Um, is going to be broadcasting for the Mets. Again, the schedule is very different this year. The Phillies don't play the National League East until mid-June at home. It's it, you know They don't have a lot of these early games against them. They're going to play in a lot of American League teams to start. So you're going to go down the stretch to the season, and you're going to have more games against these National League teams where you've got the Mets that we, we're going to talk about their lineup next week with Pat McCarthy. You know, you've got the Braves who are always the Braves. It's, it's going to be a challenging effort there. It's, it's, it's going to be a weird season. Like to me, getting this season, the first NLE series is when it, you start to get juiced up for the season. I mean, after opening day, 
And, and you're not going to have that for a while. And look, we've got about a minute and a half left, but eight of these guys aren't going to be in camp for a while. They're going to be at the World Baseball Classic. You've got Real Muto, Schwarber, and Turner with Team USA, Alvarado and Suarez on Venezuela, Soto with the Dominican Republic, Walker in Mexico. I, I told you what my issue is with that. I, I'm good with them getting the experience. The problem is, is with all these rule changes, those rule changes aren't coming into play in the World Baseball Classic. And in Players need time to adjust to these rule changes, and that's what spring training is always all about, is, is adjusting and getting ready for the season. You're playing under a different set of rules in the WBC than you are going to be playing in the regular season. I would like these guys to be getting used to the pitch clock, getting used to having to stand in, getting used to the pickoff stuff, uh, and they're not going to be doing that for the time that they're away. Are you excited to watch it, though? Like, are you going to watch the WBC? Yes. Okay. Something else, uh, th- th- 30 seconds, yes or no, will you give it a chance? The XFL or USFL? Absolutely not. Not one word. Absolutely not. I will not be watching one second. So I can't include that as a future show topic when different games you, happen. You can do it, but you're going to be the one giving all the information. <laughs> you're not going to participate much in that conversation. I will not be watching highlights either. I just don't need it. Any, enough. Any Football final thoughts? Over. You gutted this performance out, Jeff. Any last thoughts? Football season's over. Oh, Mr. Excitement. The only thing left for football season is the draft. Goodbye. It's over. I'm good until the fall. (laughs) Thanks so much for joining us this week. Make sure to join us next Friday night to help you start your weekend in style. Have a great one. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.